Welcome to Grace Story Podcast. We're here to connect you with education, resources, and community that equip you for the journey of restoration. My name's Nate Davison, and I am your host here at Grace Story Podcast. I'm glad you're here with us. This is a conversation for you. There's something in this episode just for you. Uh, there is no uh, mistake why you're here uh, and why you're listening. I'm glad you're here. Uh, this may just be the episode that sets you on a different course. This may be the episode that gives you something new for your journey of restoration. Uh, this is an episode that well, I'll be honest, it kind of had me questioning a little bit some things that I don't really think about from time to time. Uh, there's, you know, scripture about God's promises and, and there's stories in the Bible about miracles. And uh, we're, we're going to hear from someone who's going to share her experience, Charnika Elliott. She's going to share her experience um, through, through some ups and downs, some serious lows um, and some amazing highs. Um, but it got me questioning like, does God still make promises to people? Uh, we know he keeps his promises. Uh, are we just looking for things in scripture? Um, does God work miracles today? Um, well, we're, we're going to find out at least from one person's experience uh, what that looks like if God really does keep his promises. Uh, Sharnika Elliott, she is a wife, a mother, an educator, an entrepreneur, and a mentor. Uh, she's born and raised in Roanoke, Virginia, and is married to Byron Elliott, also of Roanoke. She is the proud mother of two children, Promise and Joshua, and became a legal guardian and mother to a former student, Devante. Sharnika is an author, uh, well, of several books, but the book we're going to be concentrating on today is entitled Silence of the Womb. Uh, it's a, a book about her journey of hope, faith, and, and victory, and really uncovers many of her, uh, the story of her personal scars of devastation, pain, loss of hope, depression, and even thoughts of suicide. Um, it's, it's a book you're not going to want to miss. And this episode is, is more of that story. Uh, I know you're going to love it. So let's go to that conversation with Sharnika Elliott right now. Sharnika, it is great to have you on this episode of Grace Story Podcast. And you have quite the story. Uh, I know you've written a book about your story. And uh, just thank you for coming on the episode today to share that story. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure and an honor to be here and um, always good to be able to share your story with other people, um, to be able to bring enlightenment to them. That's what God you know, wants us to do is to be a light to others. Yeah. And, you know, we actually met um, maybe a year and a half ago at, at a conference we went to. Um, I think it was in Tennessee. Um, and yeah. you shared a little bit there with me. And I've been trying, I'm wanting to get you on the podcast ever since. But that your story, where, where do you start on something like that? Where, where, where does your story begin? Well, it's hard to, to tell you exactly where to begin. It's such a long story, but, um, I guess I can try and condense it the best I can, but my, um, husband and I had been married for five years and, um, I was teaching in the public school system and we were ready to start a family and, had their first child, was pregnant, and two weeks before my um, delivery date, we found out that our first son was stillborn, that there was no heartbeat. And so um, that was devastating for us because we were ready to deliver. You know, it was, I was having contractions. My doctor was checking to see if my service had dilated some. She was like, you may be going into labor a few weeks early. It was literally two weeks exactly before the due date. So I was at 38 weeks gestation. 
And so he was our first child, the first grandchild on both sides of the family. And so, um, you know, I can't, it's hard to put into words, really the devastation that you feel and the disappointment. Um, but we are strong faith people. We have a, a lot of belief in God and that God makes no mistakes. So we just persevered and, and clung to our family and to the support system we had with our church. And we decided to try again. <clears throat> Unfortunately for us, our second pregnancy ended the same way. Um, our second son, Christian, passed at 38 weeks gestation, just like Noah, two weeks before his due date. Um, the story is a little different with um, Christian because um, I was seeking um, additional treatment and I ended up switching doctors, not by choice. Um, my doctor had a baby and was no longer available and the treatment changed when I switched doctors. And we believe that Christian's death could have you know, been prevented, but that's another story. Um, but still God is in control. And so for us at that time, that was like the end, you know, to bury a second son less than a year apart, um, to hold another lifeless child in your arms and for doctors to tell you that they're perfect, but they're, but you looking at them and they're, they're dead, they're lifeless. So at that moment, I just, I didn't want to live anymore. I wanted to die with Christian. With Noah, I was still holding on to my faith. And I was like, God, I can, I believe you for all things. I know that you can breathe life in, into him. And even if you don't, I trust you. But when Christian, I was just, I prayed a different prayer. And I was like, Lord, take my life for his, or either take mine with his. Um, because I just didn't think I could bear that again. So that that's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Yeah. So let's go. So let's go back to to kiddo number one. Um, you're going through that. You're you're talking about. You're expecting uh, this little bundle of joy. Uh, you have already got a name for him. First kid named Noah. Noah. So you've got Noah coming on the way. Were there any precursors? Anything that was letting them know, hey, there might be a problem here. We should check up more often. Or is this just out of the blue, just what, how did you find that out? Was there something coming along? Well, with Noah, I did have a few um, situations to where I went to the doctor complaining, um, but I don't think there, medically nothing ever showed up. How about that? Or scientifically, medically, nothing ever showed up that there was something wrong. And so um, I remember there was one um, episode that I had at school and I was really sick, wasn't feeling well. And my principal actually put a long-term sub in my, well, a, a school sub in my room. And she drove me herself to the doctor. And um, it, they ran tests and they were like, just, you know, rest, it's your first pregnancy. And I just constantly just kept having a lot of discomfort. And internally, like my instinct, I kept saying something's wrong. You know, I felt like something was going to happen. And I don't know if it's maternal instinct, you know, being spiritually connected to God. I can't explain it, but I just felt something was wrong. And then um, if you read the book on the 4th of July, I had an instance where I felt like he left me, like I like like something had left my body. And I was so nervous and I was so afraid. This, you're a mom. This is your first pregnancy. You know, people are telling you that you're just being anxious and, you know, a little paranoid. It's okay. Everything's fine. So I'm thinking that maybe it's just me. And so I knew I had a doctor's appointment a couple of days later. So my husband and I went and we purchased a, a little heart monitor that you could buy, went to Target. 
And that time I thought I was listening to his heartbeat, but doctors confirmed that he, um, they felt like he passed at that moment when I felt like he passed and that he had been um, deceased for a couple of days by the time I delivered a few days later. So, um, but any other major alarming signs, there were none. When, when you learned in, in the doctor's office about Noah's passing, what, what goes through your mind? I, I felt like uh, time had stopped. I really felt like I, I was still in time and like, this can't be real. You know, like as if I was having an out-of-body experience, like watching something, but yet it wasn't true. And I just went into complete shock. Like, wait a minute, what do you mean my child is, you know, not alive? And even though I had that that um, that feeling a few days prior, I had convinced myself that he was fine. You know, I was still having contractions. I thought I felt him moving, but obviously it was not. The doctor was saying that it was just probably the intense contractions that I was having. And so in my mind, he was still alive. So I was like, this is just hard to fathom. What do you mean my child is dead? Um, my husband, I think we both just we went into shock and I know I started at first I was quiet and I just was kind of like trying to take it in. But then I just started like screaming, like, no, God, no, you know, like, what do you mean? Like, why did this happen? And my doctor was crying. I mean, when she looked at me, she literally was in tears. Um, Cause she had really connected with us on, you know, we had developed a good relationship. So it's really devastating because your expectation is I'm coming home with my baby. You know, we had had a, um, a baby shower and we had received two of everything like literally you would have thought we were having twins and so we were just so excited and just ready to be parents that was something we both desired you know like i said I had, we had been married five years we were high school sweethearts i was in my profession he was in his i was 26 years old going to be 27 it was our first child we just we just thought we had done everything right and so we were we just was in complete shock like how did this happen to us and why did it happen to us? It sounds like you, they talk about the stages of grief and all that. You know, you're, it sounds like you're bouncing between a few of them, you know, a little bit of anger, frustration, uh, denial, maybe, and denial. You know, all those things. <laughs> but, you know, this is it, it's the next step in, in your life uh, journey. Uh, what was it? What was it like coming home after that? Um, and what was it like? Because you, you don't leave there. Uh, thinking, well, I'm going to write a book now. And, you know, this is right. everything is kind of come out of this and God's going to be glorified. And, you know, that doesn't happen. So in that yeah. moment, you know, without seeing the future uh, and how that story is going to help others, what's that like coming home for the first time and walking in that front door? Coming home for the first time, that same stillness and silence that we heard uh, or that we did not hear, I guess you could say, that took place when I delivered Noah was the same stillness and silence coming home. On the drive home, my husband and I just literally did not talk at all. We both, I think, were still just in disbelief. And when we walked into the house, it was the same way. I remember our bulldog, um, Pablo, at the time, um, when we walked into the house, I had a reef. So when your baby dies at the hospital here, they put a reef on the door so that the staff will know that the child was still born or, you know, didn't survive so that they'll be more sensitive um, to your situation and caring for you. So I brought the reef in and I laid it on the Bible um, in our living room on the coffee table. And I remember the dog. I remember Pablo going over 
to the reef and he sniffed it and he just sat there and just kind of whined as if he knew what had happened. It was strange. But I just ran straight to our room and just shut the door and just bawled. I mean, it was just like I cried in the hospital, but I didn't release what I really wanted to release. I don't think until I got home. Our family had already been to our house and they tried to, they closed up the nursery and they had gone through our cabinets and removed bottles and, you know, things like that, that we already had out prepared so that we wouldn't see them. So speaking of that, how, how do people relate to you now that this is, Noah's gone um, and they're expecting the joy as well. How, how do people interact with you right now? Our family was devastated. I've come from a large family. My dad is one of 15. Um, We're a very close family. And I think everybody that lived in the state in uh, Virginia (laughs) that was within close proximity of me were there at the hospital. Um, I remember my brother-in-law was in Egypt at the time and we had to try and contact him to get the news to him, which was, you know, really hard because we wanted him to be able to get back, you know, for our funeral services and things. But my family was right there. I don't think they really knew what to say. And so um, they were just there for support and comfort. And they were all saddened too, because everybody was waiting, you know, like, Barney Sharnika, Barney Sharnika, we can't wait till they have a child, you know, like they just thought we were this perfect couple and everybody was just excited and waiting on his arrival and um their reaction was like ours they were also watching me to make sure i wasn't too fragile as a mother but also i'm known as one that's very strong in the family too and so they were um keeping a close eye on me as one who is usually the strong one you know just to make sure that i didn't break down and have this, you know, nervous breakdown or something, I think they may have thought that I would have had. And so our family was constantly at our house, like literally, even when I was in the bed laying down, they were there, they were in the house, they were outside, they were in the living room, they were downstairs, like they, they were just surrounding our house. So it was a blessing, you know, to be able to have that support system like that. So where did you, because this happened a second time, where did you find the the courage or the um, to take that next step and have this uh, another child? Um, the story is long. It's a it's a long story. So before I ever was pregnant, I knew God had promised me a girl. Um, some people may not understand that, but I'm a, I have a strong spiritual connection, and I knew God had promised me a girl. I'd seen her. And so when Noah was a boy, I was surprised. I was like, this is supposed to be a girl. So I laughed and I chuckled, you know, when they confirmed he was a boy. And I just felt God had promised me a girl. And so my husband and I went on, um, my cousin and his um, wife, he's more like a brother to me and a best friend to my husband. Um, They took us a few weeks after Noah had passed. They took us on a trip just to get us out of the city because I'm very well known. And both of our families are very well known locally. And so, you know, we just needed to get away. We just needed to have that separation for a minute. And so they took us on a trip to Fort Lauderdale, Florida, just to get us, uh, you know, get our minds free for a while. And while we were there, my husband had a dream. And in the dream, he said that it's like we were in this room and it was like all these drawers and 
Um, it had names on it. And when you pulled out the drawer, there were babies inside, but all the babies were dead, which sounds terrible. But then when he got to the drawer with our name on it, there was this little girl and she was alive and kicking. And so he then saw the girl too. And so we talked about it. And um, I was like, I just believe God has promised us a girl. You know, I don't know what this means with Noah. Maybe something would have happened and God didn't want us to endure. You know, you try and rationalize and try and figure out. But the Bible says that God's ways are higher than our ways and his thoughts are higher than our thoughts. So we would never be able to know. But that's just common human nature. What you do is you try and figure it out on your own. And so we were like, we just have to trust God. Do we do we continue to try? You know, what do we do? And so we were like, we're not going to try, but we're not going to, to prevent anything from happening as well. And so one of the nurses, and I had trouble getting pregnant. So um, one of the nurses told me, she said, after you have a baby, it's really easy to conceive again. So she was like, maybe you should just see what happens. And it happened quickly. Um, and I think that's just kind of where we were. You know, we just put our hope and faith and trust in, in God that, you know, He's in control of all things. Literally, that's all we hope we had was in him. So you're going through pregnancy number two, and I'm sure this time, you know, you're you're a little bit more confident in what you have experienced. So what's going on in your body? Um, mm -hmm. What what was that like? Uh, and and was there a time during that pregnancy that you thought something might be going wrong? Yeah. So I took a leave of absence. Um, I worked a few months after I discovered I was pregnant and then I took a leave of absence myself. The doctor didn't put me on bed rest. I put myself on bed rest because I just wanted to make sure that I was doing everything in my human power to make sure that Christian was okay. So um, my doctor, she um, told me that we would have extensive testing as we got closer, you know, further along in the pregnancy, probably starting around 32 weeks, that I would have two visits a week. They would start doing biophysical profiles and not just um, doing ultrasounds. That's where it's a little more in depth where you can check the blood flow and, you know, look at the umbilical cord and other things like that. And so she was like, we're going to deliver this baby early. You're not going to go to 38 weeks. You know, we're going to get him, get him out, we're going to monitor you. And that was the plan. And we stuck to the plan. But she found out she was pregnant and she was due before me. And so um, she, on May the 14th of 2004, she went to the hospital to deliver. And um, her fluids was actually low. And she was like, Sharnika, I'm not leaving here until... I have an induction on the books. And she didn't. She sat right there. She put me on the books for the following week with a um, amnio on the 21st and then to deliver. But I was in the hands of another physician at the time. She had referred me to another physician in the office. And as soon as my doctor scheduled that appointment, I had another appointment with um, the physician I was referred to and she canceled it. And she said, you're just a paranoid mother. Um, the papers don't lie. There's nothing showing there's anything wrong with him. I don't deliver early. I don't go before 39 weeks. And I'm like, but I had a stillbirth at 38 weeks. And you don't even know what caused his death. Um, but she was very arrogant and mean. <laughs> I did not like her from the moment I saw her. And I'd asked for my doctor because I just didn't have a good feeling with her. And I was told that she was the best and to stick with her, which did not work in my favor. Um, but anyway, she canceled the induction. And so 
that week prior on that 21st when I was scheduled to do an amnio, she wouldn't do it. She said she she came up with every excuse as to why she couldn't do the amnio. And so um, I started feeling sick. And so they when I was they put you on the monitors and they do a stress test is what they call it. NST, non-stress test. And so he was not moving that much. Christian wasn't not like he should be to be about 37 weeks. And um, I think I was 37 and maybe two days at the time. And so um, the nurse was like, I'll call it. We're going to send her over. We're going to induce her. You know, we, let's get this going. You know, this baby's not moving like he needs to. He's big. He's like almost eight pounds. Like, let's get it going. And so um, they called the doctor who was on call at the time at the hospital. And she said, give her a Coke and leave her on there. And so they gave me a Coke and when sometimes you drink caffeine, it causes the babies, you know, to jump around and move a little more. He started to move some more. And so they sent me home. Well, two days later, that Sunday, I started having contractions at church really, really bad. And so my mom took me to the hospital. The doctor was still the doctor that was on call. They hooked me up to the machines. I was there for a couple of hours getting a, a stress test done. And it was the same thing. He was barely moving. Um, and she should have, but she didn't. Um, probably done an emergency C-section. She sent me home and two days later, he died in the womb. And so I was telling her, please don't let me go past the 25th. Like I just, I'm feeling sick again. Like I felt with Noah, something's not right. I know it's not showing, but he's not moving like he should be, you know? So obviously something's not right. Please take him. And she would not. And that was on May 23rd. And the last time I felt to move in my, in my womb was May 25th. Let me ask you this. And, and this is probably both times, but you, you, you still delivered. And there was no life there with the delivery. Um, nope. What, what is that like? Hell. <laughs> um, I remember saying, if this is what hell is like, I'm in it. It was torture um, because I vaginally delivered both sons. Um, and so your expectation is your baby's going to be crying, you know, when they come out, not dead, you know, not lifeless, not silent. And so when I was delivering um, Noah, I was kind of in a place where I was in the back of the hospital. So it was kind of isolated a little bit. But when I had Christian, um, there was a woman next door to me and she was having a baby and I could hear everything. And I just, I just wanted somebody to just kill me. I was happy for her, but not happy because of my situation, because I, you can hear the heartbeat on the monitors, like, and you can hear her family. They're excited. They're like, oh, and you heard the baby, you know, when the, the baby was crying and you just hear everybody cheering. And I just knew that that was not going to be my fate again. And so it was rough. And I had to really have the most spiritual people around me at the time. I didn't want any spectators. I didn't want family around that just wanted to be there because they didn't know what else to do. I needed people who could stand in the gap and intercede for me and for my sanity and to make sure that I was not going to lose my mind because I felt like that I was. So my pastor was there and um, of course my husband, my parents and his parents, but there was a select few of people. I made a list and I was like, only these people are allowed to be here. And I'm sorry, I'm not trying to hurt people's feelings, but right now it's not about their feelings. It's about my life. 
and about my sanity. So it was really rough and really hard to go through that mentally. And the only way I can tell people I survived it was really by God's grace and his strength. His word says his strength is made perfect in our weakness. The Holy Spirit carried me through. I, if my own self, I could not have done it. Sharnika could not have, have made it through that mentally. Not that close together. They were 11 months apart. Noah was um, delivered July 9th, 2003, and Christian May 27th, 2004. It was just too close. I would assume after, uh, after Noah and then that close together, you're probably, there's a lot of distraction, maybe in a good way for you, um, with, yeah. with Christian coming along but still maybe not the processing you needed. Um, so that compound, oh, no. how was, how was that after, after uh, a Christian, how was that different than the first time with Noah? Were there differences? There were differences. Um, like I said, with Noah, I still was praying and God, you can, you know, I believe you, I trust you in all things. And even with Christian, I was, I didn't say I didn't trust him, but my prayer changed to, I wanted God to take me. I didn't, when you're a parent, and you love your child unconditionally. You would do anything for your child. You would die for your child. And so I was like, take me, let him live, you know? And that was my prayer. And though I don't want to give it away because people may want to purchase the book. Um, but there was a moment when I was transitioning and um, I was happy. I was thanking God. I thought he was going to take me out of here and I was happy. And um, when I came back, I was devastated. <laughs> I was heartbroken. I was angry because I was like, God, why did you let me experience that? And then you send me back, back here. But I could feel and hear that there was purpose. Like I have purpose. It's not your time. And I remember hearing the doctor say, we got her back. And when I, I wasn't conscious yet completely, as far as having my eyes open, but when I looked, and I saw my mom and she was like white as a ghost. And my husband, they had him like in restraints. I just knew that there's no way my family could have survived losing me um, to and or, you know, if he had lived and I had died. And God, it wasn't my time yet. So um, I was like, Lord, I'm going to need you to get me through this. You know, with Noah, my family was there. They kind of carried us through. But God, nobody can carry me through this but you. And so I really didn't want to have company. I didn't want to have guests. I didn't want to have visitors. I just wanted to be by myself. And even when we had the service for Christian, it was a little different than the one for Noah, because I, I guess we were still probably in the grieving process with Noah, but because like you said, we were distracted with the pregnancy of Christian that we still hadn't properly grieved the death of Noah. So when Christian passed and they were buried side by side and I had not been to the cemetery since Noah and I had to go, that was the first time I had been there. I literally, I had a, a panic attack. Um, I couldn't breathe. I started hyperventilating. Like they had to, I, I think I collapsed maybe. I think I, they caught me or something like it was really bad and I didn't think I could do it. And as we were, they were like, do you want to go? And I wasn't going to go anyway. And my uncle talked to my husband and I, he was like, we support y'all, whatever you want to do. And I finally was like, I'm just going to go and pay respects to my child. And so I, you know, it was hard. And I talk about how every step that I walked from the limo to the grave site, how I knew that God was, was carrying me, you know, the whole way. In the book you're talking about, uh, it's titled "Silence of the Womb: From Pain to Promise," and you know mm -hmm. we've already we've already talked about losing not one but two children, 
um, with the hope of that, that promise of, of kiddos and noise and, and joy and every, the messes and everything that comes along with that. Mm-hmm. And then not only that, but uh, you talk about transitioning that uh, a near-death experience where you were just okay with, well, th- this is convenient for me, that this works. <laughs> this is a way out of this pain. Yeah. <laughs> I want, I want to go to that, that pain and you you talk about it from pain to promise. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that, that pain developed into what, what's the promise you're talking about? Yes. Well, the, the promise that I'm talking about in the book from pain to a promise is really my daughter promise. So my daughter's name is promise, but it's P R O M Y S S, but also the promise too of, um, that God had given me as a child with my a vision of what I wanted in life. Um, and also God's promises to carry us through, to protect us, to, you know, be our comfort, to be our joy, to be our strength. There's so many promises that he gives us in his word. And we can go from pain to a promise. I truly believe that in every valley there is purpose. You know, there's purpose in your pain. But particularly this is relating to my daughter promise, who was the girl that I believe God had promised us. And we, we, um, got pregnant again a third time and that pregnancy ended in a miscarriage at four months. So um, I talk about that in the book, how I think that was probably maybe more devastating than Noah and Christian, because I just knew this has to be it. You know, like this has to be the girl, like this has to be that baby. And um, it was not. So that one ended in a miscarriage. I had to have surgery and I just didn't know if I could do it again after that. And um, it, the story is so deep, <laughs> but I knew I had to be, I don't know how much you want me to tell, but I, I talk about it in the book. Um, I used to watch the Word Network and I saw this event, the Threshing Floor Revival on TV, and it was in Atlanta. And this is when I was pregnant with the baby I miscarried. And it was like, it jumped out at me at the TV. It was like, you're supposed to be there. And I told my husband, I said, we're supposed to be at their revival. And he was like, how are we going to be there? And I'm like, I don't know. I'm going to be like eight months pregnant. My doctors aren't going to let me travel to Atlanta. Like, no way. Maybe it's just me, you know? And I just knew that I knew that I was supposed to be there. And I miscarried that baby in that that January of 2006. So I had just given up. We hadn't thought about anything else. I was still operating and doing things um, within our ministry and with the NOAA Christian Community Center that we had started, but I just still was not connected like I needed to be and still was grieving heavily. And so March came, that, that revival was in April of 2006. March of 2006 came and something just hit me and said, you're supposed to be there. And I got that same inclination. I said, there's no way we're going to get a hotel room. It's supposed to be 55,000 people, you know, here at the at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. And we called a couple of hotels and one had a cancellation and we went. And we're at this revival and we're like, I don't know why we're supposed to be here. We're at the Georgia Dome. And this couple comes and taps me on my shoulder and says, get your husband. And your my husband was standing in front of me. And so I tapped my husband and they started talking to us. They grabbed us by the hand and just literally just started speaking over our life. We'd never seen them before there in our life. We're in, we're in Atlanta, Georgia with the Georgia Dome. There's 55,000 people there from all over the world. And this couple is there 
and they start ministering to us and my husband just breaks down because the things that they're saying, there's no way they would know unless God used them and spoke through them. And so then the husband put money in my hand and he said, this is for your ministry. You're going to reach thousands. And he said, especially youth. And so he said, this is a seed offering. And then his wife said, I don't know how you feel about this. She said, but God is telling me to lay hands on your stomach and to pray now. She was like, whatever has hindered you will end today. And she literally, at that moment, I wasn't going to say no. I mean, after what we was experiencing, she laid hands on my stomach. I literally was out. I went out for like electricity or something that hit my body. I was laid out flat. And the next month I was pregnant with my daughter. I found out I was pregnant with my daughter, promise. So <laughs> there's a lot. That's why I was saying it's so deep. Like you have to really read the book to hear all the, but it's, I just, I knew at that moment that when she laid hands on me, I could feel, I felt like the deaf angel had left me. Like it's hard to, you know, explain it, but I felt that evil, that whatever presence was surrounding me that was trying to prevent my seed from coming into this earth was removed. And God had to send someone that I didn't even know to use them to intercede on my behalf because sometimes you get too close with people. And so these were strangers we had never met before. We still have a relationship with them all these years later. They call themselves Auntie Daniel and um, I mean, Auntie um, Betsy and Uncle Daniel to my kids. And they live in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. We have a, a great relationship with them because they are monumental in our life and our story. So I had my daughter promise and we didn't have any problems with her. I was pregnant. I had to go to UVA hospital in Charlottesville, Virginia, had to move there the last two months of the pregnancy. And they delivered her a 37 weeks gestation. She was six pounds, six and a half ounces. And she was the promise. She was that girl. And I had held her in the spirit. And it was so hard to get people to understand that because sometimes people think you're crazy. They're like, oh, she's delusional. She's crazy. She's grieving. You know, she's living in a la la land. She's in Fantasy Island. Bless her poor little heart. You know, and then other people who are spiritual, like they understand it. And so I said, I've already held her in the spirit. God let me hold her. He has confirmed my promise. And that's why her name is Promise. And so when I had her, I couldn't even cry. You could hear the doctors, the nurses, UVA had connected with us as well. They're crying, my, my mom's crying, my husband's crying. You hear people in the family in the hallway screaming, shouting, crying. Like the, the local paper put in the newspaper because we have people all over the world, literally in other continents praying for us because we've been so connected to people. And so I had this mass email list and my cousin was in charge of sending the email to say, she's here. And so I didn't shed one tear. I just looked straight up and I said, thank you, Jesus. Like that's all because I had already cried. I had already held her. So I had already felt that. So everybody was screaming and I just was like, thank you, Jesus. Like now I'm finally, that promise that you gave me has now come to fruition. Like it's now in my arms in reality. And, and that's just kind of how it happened with her. <laughs> and so she's the promise. God took that pain and, and turned it right into the promise that he had spoken over us. So that's the, that's the pain to the promise that you're, you're talking about. And, and with it, I mean, you've been through, I didn't even know about the miscarriage, um, two, two stillbirths, one miscarriage, um, all that's going on in your family, your marriage, you're still living life alongside all this. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. you go to a revival, uh, people pray over you. And, and the next thing you know, here you are with, with your promise, but mm -hmm. through that, what was, uh, what was the significance of that to your restoration journey to the healing? Um, cause I'm sure you weren't just like, 
snap, finger snapped. I've, I've, I have mm-hmm. no pain inside still, um, certainly yeah. with the, the fruition of a promise like that. Yeah. It was going to the revival and having them lay hands on me. You know, that moment began the restoration, I think, because it was just confirmation that God was there. <laughs> I didn't believe in that God was real, which I had already knew that I knew that he was anyway. I've experienced him so many times in my life. And even when I had that near-death experience, God let me know he's real. But I just began my healing really at that moment because I felt like God was going to give me that which he had said and that he was comforting me and that he had been there with me the whole time. And so it began there. But even after promise was born, we were still happy. We were joyful. But that fear, you know, that the fleshly side of us, the Bible says that the flesh is weak, but the spirit is willing. That fleshly side of me still had some anxiety and fear. So even when I brought her home, she was born at 37 weeks and three days. And so I stared at her every moment because in my mind, knowing Christian had died at 38 weeks gestation. Now she's out of the womb. You know, she's not in the womb, but in my mind, I was still counting to 38. And I was watching her, is she going to die? You know, staring at her every moment, literally, to where she became clinging and attached to me. My husband's like, oh my gosh, what did you do? Because I wanted, I had to look at her the whole time. I was so like, is she going to die? Is she going to stop breathing? You know, once she get to these certain days. And after she got, after we got past those couple of days where she would have been 38 weeks, it was just like something came off of me. She lived. She survived past that moment. And so I think that's when the real healing started to take place. And um, I just, we went through this, you know, the, the five stages of grief properly, I believe. Um, we had already accepted the fact that the boys had died, which that's the final um, stage. But sometimes you get stuck in a place of permanence. And I have another book, Empowered, um, which was my first book. Um, and I talk about how to heal after tragedy. And I talk about the um, this three uh, stages that um, the doctor talks about that people get stuck in, and he said the place of permanence is the one that people emerge themselves in, and this where you believe that this is where it's always, how my life is always going to be. Like, it's never going to change from this. And I think that's why a lot of people have suicidal thoughts and things like that, too, because you accept it. Like, my tomorrow is never going to change. My next five years from now is never going to change. I'm going to be stuck here. And so I talk about the three P's of prayer, praise, and perseverance, and how that's what got me through was to pray, to praise, to persevere, to not give up, to pray, to praise, you know, to always be thankful to God, to get out of the why me and get into the why not me, to get into God's word, to know that his word says the rain falls on the just and the unjust. It has nothing to do with whether you're good or bad. We live in an evil world. So I had to really drown myself in the world. God said, in this life, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer for I've overcome the world. That was Jesus's words. So I had to go back and remind myself of those things. I had to look at other people and say, yes, I lost my kids. There's people who lost their entire family. You know, there's people who've lost everything. So I had to find the good in it. And once I started to do that, that really helped my my healing journey. Um, God, you allowed me to be pregnant. I felt these babies inside of me. I, I witnessed life grow. I watched them, you know, on these 3D videos and I have copies of it. And I know women within my circle who've never experienced pregnancy before. They don't know what that's like. So I had to really find the good. And I know that the word says, and first Thessalonians 5, 18, and everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning uh, you. It didn't say 
in everything give thanks meaning be thankful that the negative happened but it's saying in those things still be thankful like even in the midst of the bad you can still find things to be thankful for not to celebrate oh my kids are dead that's not what that scripture means so i had to find the good in that i had to find how it was still you know even though my boys died i even said they're not here they're not in this evil world they're in God, they're in heaven with God. You know, they're watching over me. You know, you have to find the good in it so that you can move forward. And so you can get past that place to where you don't feel like this is where I'll be forever. And, and my life is going to be impacted by this to where I'll never get over this. Because we could have, it could have ended a different way. I did have suicidal thoughts at one point. I could have taken my life. My husband and I, our marriage statistically shows that our marriage should have been ruined statistic wise going through two child deaths and that but it didn't we grew stronger stronger in each other and stronger in god's word so it just when it's like i said when i say from pain to a promise it's deep the promise was just physically my daughter but it's so much deeper than that it's the promise in god's word that he would never leave us nor forsake us you know that he's always with us even in the midst of all that's going on he's right there and so um i can only thank him every day for his grace and his unfailing love because you know, it, like I said, I got to, why not me? Why not me? You know, and when you ask that question, it helps you not fall into a victim. So, so. It, it sounds like you found, not just sounds like you have two books out at least. And, uh, you I have, have three, three books <laughs> and you're, you're, you're coaching people and you're affecting lives. You're sharing your story. Um, you, you know, it makes sense that you'd be able to help people out of your story. But let me ask you this. How do I, as an individual who's never experienced that myself, how, how do I help someone who's, who's had that loss um, th that you experienced? Um, I get this question a lot, Nate. Um, and it's really, it's, the best thing that I tell people is just to be there for that individual and just to listen. Um, sometimes people try and, and give you words or give you their thoughts or even give you their opinions. And really that's just not valid. <laughs> Nobody wants to hear that at that time. Um, just being understanding and having empathy. Um, I know people would say to me, oh, it's okay. You can have another baby. <laughs> like I'm just supposed to forget <laughs> like about my child. This is a life. I was holding my child in my arms. The only difference between him and the baby in the nursery next door is that they're alive and he's not. You know, he has 10 fingers and 10 toes like everybody else. He has a heart and lungs and liver and kidneys and, you know, hair, eyes, all this. Or I'm looking at him. He's beautiful. He's gorgeous. This beautiful, you know, black, cold black hair and, you know, just this little angel. And it's you'll have another one, you know, and and I know they their intentions were good. <laughs> but it didn't come across that way. It was insulting. It's hurtful because it's almost like you are undervaluing the, the life of my child. Like it didn't matter. You could have another one. It was just a baby, you know, like get over it. Okay. Well, are you a mother? Yes. Okay. Imagine that that was your child lifeless in your arms and then tell me that you can just have another one. And so I would just tell people, just be encouraging, um, share individual stories like mine you know, with people that they can relate to. Because when those things happen to you and you could probably, Nate, anytime you go through something, you always feel like you're the only one. 
you know, your house, something happens. Oh, I'm the only one. You lose your job. I'm the only one. You know, like this is the only thing ever. I'm the only one being affected by this. It's just the mentality. The enemy makes us feel isolated. When you're losing a child, sometimes you feel like this is why I me. Mean, I'm the only one this has happened to. But really, there's thousands, millions of people who experience stillbirth and CS and infant death and premature deaths and miscarriages all over. And so I would just say, be a listener to that person. Um, just have some understanding, have some empathy, guide them to resources like myself or other, other people. But when you get to trying to share opinions or thoughts, just don't do it. <laughs> just don't do it. <laughs> well, and you mentioned, you mentioned, uh, how, how common this is. Um, cause I mean, that was back in 2004 that that was happening. Mm-hmm. And as recently as, you know, 2015, the stillbirth uh, and death in, in pregnancy, that that's still such a major issue that it doesn't seem like the medical medical community, I'm speaking as a nurse here, doesn't seem like we've made a lot of headway there. Um, it's just on the back burner. Yeah, we'll get to it. I, I don't know, you know, uh, what's been done there. But with it being so common, why do you think it is that we don't hear more stories uh, like yours, or people don't talk about it um, with each other as much. Uh, it seems like we we know of people that have had miscarriages, but we just don't talk about it. Maybe I think it's just a sensitive issue. Um, you hear about child death or tragic death. You know, someone die, dies older, or you know, other incidents. But for whatever reason, when a baby dies, it's like it's so sensitive, such a sensitive issue. I have women, I have a heal support group that I started in 2009, two years after um, I had promised. And I have women in that group who had family members who did not know about their stories. And they didn't want them to know. Like they were, um, I don't know if it's like a sense of shame that's that's tied to it you know even biblically you know if you were barren uh you know it was like you're this shameful person or whatever like you can't produce and have babies i know that i carried a lot of shame myself and i just felt like i was i had let my family down i had let my husband down you know like what's wrong with me why can't my babies live um so you feel that guilt and shame so i don't know that for me, I know that may be one of the reasons why it's not commonly shared from within the ladies that I've worked with over the last 11 years um, and some of their stories that they provide. But also, I think, too, just medically, it's an issue because of abortion and fetal infant you know, rights versus women's rights. And I think it goes deep into that. I was a member of the National Stillbirth Society started by Richard Olson, who he's now deceased, but he had lost his first child to stillbirth in 2000. And he started the National Stillbirth Society and he was trying to get all babies recognized, infants recognized as a baby in all the states because they weren't. And so even when I had Noah and Christian, I could not get a death certificate because they weren't considered babies. Even though they were seven pounds, one ounce, and eight pounds, 2.79 ounces, they weren't this little dot, like they were baby babies. Um, they weren't considered a baby. So I, I couldn't get a death certificate on them. So all we were able to get was like the little handprints and things like that that they give you in the hospital. I can get one now because in Virginia, the law was changed. Um, so we could get a death certificate. We had talked about it. We just hadn't, hadn't done it, but, um, 
I think it's a lot of other issues, political, social, you know, just involved as to why people don't talk about it as much. And like I said, for women, just the shame that's associated with it. You know, you think something's wrong with you, so you don't want to talk about it. One of the ladies, um, she no, she had had a miscarriage in my group and her parents didn't even know. And she just kind of suffered in silence. You know, just she and, and her um, husband. And she needed people to know. She needed because she needed them to know because it was she was felt like she they had a grandchild that they don't know about, you know, but um, she finally broke down and shared it after she had been in that group for about two years and shared it with them. So I think that has a lot to do with it. It's just the guilt, the shame um, and also just the way it's viewed, like I said, politically as well. So how did that And let me ask you this. Should everyone share their story? Um, and is is it appropriate? And how, how do you share your story if it's of value? Um, I think you have to be spirit led to share your story. If, if God leads you, you're talking to someone and you feel like it will empower them or help them at that moment to share your story, I feel like you should share it. Um, I also feel like if you're at a place of the healing that you... You know, I feel like you can't help other people in a place that you're still stuck in. So like if I have, if I'm in financial debt and you're in financial debt, I can't help you and you can't help me because we're both still in financial debt. But once we come out of it, once we come out, one of us comes out, I can show you what I did. You can, And so it's the same thing when we share our testimonies. Like it's not a testimony until I'm healed and delivered. Once God has delivered me and I've come out, now I can share because I can tell you this is where I was and this is where I am now. And so I think too, that's when you can really, you know, share, but also it brings education um, to people as well and knowledge because like I said, my family is well known. So after that happened to me, uh, and my husband, I was a public school teacher and a, a good teacher. So I was pretty popular. Um, and our, what happened to us was public. It was very public. It, we couldn't grieve in private because it was the whole city knew. I mean, Noah's funeral, you would have thought that it was like the mayor or somebody, like literally. Like it was so many people and so many police officers that they had to have to block the roads. The funeral home was overcrowded. It was people standing up inside inside the whole building outside. It was just so many people there. We had so many flowers that we had to distribute them to family members because they just went on and on and on. Like you would, and this was for a baby that nobody had never even seen. And so, and it was because of who we were. So I was asked quickly to start. People knew me. And, oh, can you come and share your story? Can you talk about this? Can you talk about that? But of course, I had started NOAA Christian Community Center. I was teaching in inner city um, and I saw a, a need within the children. I saw a lack of resources. It was a neighborhood school. I felt like there was great potential in those children, but they just wasn't able to have the same access as other children. There was a lot of inequities there. And so um, I had always had a passion and a desire to start a school since I was a little girl. I said I wanted to have a school. Um, and I have different things throughout my life that led up to it. And I just felt like, you know what? I'm gonna name, I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna start this school and I'm gonna name it after my kids. And everybody can't just go and start a school, you know, but that was something that was already embedded in me. God had already put the school in me as a little girl. 
Little did I know that I would lose my children and that would be what pushed me or ignited me, that fueled me to actually move and operate in that vision and in that dream that God had given me. And so by doing that, I became very well known and respected in the community too, because I'm offering free services to inner city youth. So that's how I got the platform to start speaking and sharing my story. But I feel like if you're one-on-one with someone or however you feel that you need to share, share. If God leads you to share, share, but make sure that you're, you've come out of it too, because that's when you can be the most impactful. Um, We have a Hill support group and God has really blessed the women in that group and he has used me mightily to help them heal. And it's because of my experience and my journey and the healing that I was able to um, accomplish through such tragic losses back to back like that. So, and I, I know we're running out of time. I get lost yeah. in conversations <laughs> quite a bit, but where, where can people uh, find your book and find out more about you? Um, you can find my book. The, you can get the Kindle version on Amazon. Um, Silence of the Wound from Pain to a Promise. But if you want the hard copy, you can purchase it from my website, sharnikapelliot.com, C-H-A-R-N-I-K-A, um, P, Elliot, E-L-L-I-O-T-T.com. You can order it there. My other books are out there as well. Um, you can um, contact me via social media. I'm on Facebook as Sharnika P. Elliott. I'm on LinkedIn as Sharnika P. Elliott and Twitter as Blessnika. Um, you can contact me in any of those areas to get the book. Several people have read the book. I want people to understand before we leave that the book is not just for women who have lost. This book could be for anybody. My husband's boss read this book. He was one of the first ones who read it and he wrote me a two page letter of testimony of how the book blessed his life because there's so much that I share in there. It's a faith journey. It's a story of, of hope, faith, and victory. And so sometimes we suffer silence of the womb in our own lives. We have tragedies and things that happen to us, situations, circumstances. We have dreams, we have goals, we have visions. And because a tragic incident happened or a setback occurred, we let those things die. They become stillborn. And so um, I haven't preached a message about that. You know, we don't want our promise to become stillborn. We want, you know, those things to still, you know, ask God to resurrect those things in our life or to push them forward so that we can still operate. So the story is powerful. Um, And God has blessed me. 17 years later, I put it in print. So, I mean, Noah died in 2003 and this book released in 2020. So... It's sometimes it may take that long to share your story, but um, yeah. yeah, yeah, because I have a miracle that if I would have written it earlier, not the promise wasn't a miracle. I actually started writing the book in 2009, but I put it down. But we have a son, Joshua, and Joshua was born on Noah's birthday 10 years later after doctors told me I would never have a live boy. And so not only did I have a live boy, but he was born on my first son, Noah's birthday, 10 years later. That is a miracle. Like only God is that awesome to do that. 10 years later. So the first day of devastation for me, July 9th, 2003, my world was shattered. July 9th, 2013, here I am blessed with this baby boy. After doctor said, we don't know what's going on. We ran all these tests. We don't know what's happening. We, there's no real answers as to why your kids are still born. It could be your chromosomes. We've ran every test. There's no real answers. They were perfect babies. We've done autopsies. We didn't find anything. You just probably won't have a live boy. Maybe you have bad exes. And there he is. He's seven years old. He's my miracle. What a, what a great way to end the episode on a miracle. Um, yeah. I love that. And But thank you, Sharnika, for coming on the episode today. And thank you for being vulnerable and sharing your story with the Great Story community. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Anyway, I can be a blessing.
Well, there you have it. One person's experience of how God can turn pain into a promise, how he comes through, and how he can answer prayer in a very personalized, very specific, unique, tailored way just for you, no matter what it is you're going through. I hope you're encouraged by Sharnika's story. I hope it helps you in your journey of restoration. Um, I know it's helped me to to think about some things differently. And if this episode has been helpful to you, uh, I hope you'll, you'll share it with family, with friends, whether that's on social media or you send it through a text, an email, uh, whatever platform you're listening on. The, it's great when you guys share this and we keep building the Grace Story community. Also, if you like what you're hearing, we'd love to hear about it. Uh, you may see your review uh, if you send us a message, whether that's a direct message on Facebook, Instagram, or sending an email to nate at greatstoryministries.com. You might see that review on our Instagram page uh, under the review tab or on our Grace Story podcast Facebook page. Uh, we'd love to get that out there so people kind of know what they're going to be listening to. All right. I think that's it. Uh, we'll be back in two weeks with another episode. Ezra Byer is going to be on. Uh, he's going to be sharing some uh, about his new book, uh, Walking with a Limp, and more about his story as well. So we hope you'll join us then. Until then, uh, we'll be praying for you on your journey of restoration, and we hope that you'll continue, and we'll be praying God's blessing on you the whole way. <laughs>